Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition. This is Bob Salzberg. I'm your host for today's program. I'll be uh, having Sarah Whitmire as our co-host today. He's WFIU's News Bureau Chief. Today, we're talking about the spike in COVID-19 cases that we've been seeing throughout the state. We've done several, several shows on COVID-19, and uh, this is this one and this time seems about as important as any we've done before. We have three guests with us. Shandy Durth is Director of Undergraduate Epidemiology Education at the Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health at IUPUI. Dr. Tom Arismalis is an MD with IU Health Southern Indiana Physicians. He's, uh, he specializes in infectious disease. And Graham McKean is Assistant University Director of Public and Environmental Health at Indiana University. You can join us on the program by sending us your question or your comment uh, to Twitter. You can follow us at Noon Edition. You can send us questions there. And you can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. All three of our guests have been with us before. We really appreciate your being back with us. Um, this is, uh, I know people are suffering from some COVID fatigue, but the numbers just tell us that things are as bad as they've been since this began. And I think we should start by trying to um, just outline where we are right now. And I want to sh- start with uh, Shandy Durth, who's the Director of Undergraduate Epidemiology Education at um, IUPUI. Shandy? Hello, thank you for having me. So unfortunately, our numbers have been getting dramatically worse over the last two weeks. And I'm actually looking at the State Department of Health's dashboard right now as we speak. They update their numbers every day at noon. And at this point across the state, on average, we're at a 12.1 positivity rate. uh, And that's getting higher, which means more of the people who are getting tested are showing up as positive, which means we've got greater transmission in the area. And we're also seeing increased numbers in everything that we look at uh, with COVID-19. So we're getting more people testing positive. We're getting more hospitalizations. And unfortunately, we're afraid soon we will start seeing more deaths across the state as well. Yeah, Dr. Rasmalis, um, you know, I know you've told us before, and thanks for being on the show again. You've been on several times. I know you've told us before that you really follow the hospitalization numbers, and I know they've been they've been going up rapidly. I think they're higher than they've ever been before. And isn't it true that the death, the deaths will follow the, these hospitalizations? Uh, yes, unfortunately, certainly that's the case. The, um, you know, if I, if I, if we look just locally here at Bloomington hospital, we are, our admissions and our intensive care unit uh, patients are getting comparable to what it was back in April. If you look at all of District 8 down here in Southern Indiana, uh, there's significantly more people in the hospital than there were at any point earlier, in fact, quite a bit more. So yes, we're in the midst of uh, a very, very worrisome increase in cases. And Graham McKean, you you were on the show with us. We've, we've reminisced about this. I think it was January 29th, you said, when you were first on the show. We first did our first show about COVID. So it's been now, wow, 10 months that you've been with us. Um, did you expect November to be the way it is? Um, hi. Um, and, and yeah, I'm propping myself up here in the, the spare bedroom again today. Uh, and good to be back. Um, I expected an increase. I, I, I don't think any of us maybe in um, this virtual room expected this kind of increase prior, pr- just prior to this point. 
Um, and I think, you know, it's just a shame. Um, you know, a lot of it's, again, behavioral science and personal actions. And I'm right there with all of us uh, in the fatigue part. I think you can hear that in my voice. And um, I think that coupled with, you know, some of those personal actions and mentalities coupled with the reduction or removal of restrictions. I mean, you can clearly see graphs and states that correlate with restrictions and restriction, restriction removal. Um, that, that, you know, I, th I think there was a little bit more spread than we anticipated at this point. And that's just absolutely tragic. Um, knowing that, you know, our healthcare workers have been dealing with this for eight months, you know, we're tired in public health. Um, and I can't imagine what our, our healthcare workers are feeling right now. And um, just, it's just going to be um, a, a little bit worse, I think, than we, we even thought it could have been with this wave in terms of the numbers of, of hospitalizations. Um, so, uh, it's a little bit uh, different time, I would say, and it's, I think it's, you know, every time we come on here, we say that it's um, the most important time yet um, to take personal responsibilities, and it really is right now, more than ever. Graham, what are the most concerning parts about this this current wave right now that we're experiencing? First, uh, I, I believe it's just the absolute deep-rooted uh, spread throughout the nation right now, I mean, it's just embedded um, in the middle of America and rural areas, um, and we still don't have this this level of testing. And, you know, again, just coupling that with personal behaviors and, and these actions and, and just the fatigue that we all have. Um, and, and knowing, again, that, that colder weather is here and holidays are here, um, it's just really that time that we have to steal ourselves um, because yeah. there is some light ahead, you know. I would. I, I also want to ask you. I know from the beginning, and you and Dr. Hasmalis have, have both talked about how this is um, the in order to get to a place of normalcy where we're not seeing these waves. There have to be several things in place, and one of those is this really robust contact tracing system. Um, and it, it, from what I've read this week and things that we've reported, the system is even struggling with so many cases. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, part of the issue was, I mean, just underfunding and the lack of a public health system nationally. And in Indiana, I think we rank 48th or so in, in public health funding. And so the state idea, I mean, seeing that and knowing that and putting that into the central centralized system and hiring up the staffing uh, was a wise move. But again, when you have, I mean, what was it today, Shandy, 6,900 6, cases that was just announced. Um, again, you have to think about what that entails. And Shandy could tell us a lot more being involved in the contact tracing in Marion County. Um, the level of contact that requires, I mean, how many cases have how many close contacts on average, uh, maybe three and a half uh, conservatively. And you can um, do that math. And that's how many people need to be contacted. And I think the state even, you know, they messaged this back in the spring. And I think they're doing that again, from what I've heard this week, um, is to, to, you know, the, the system is so stressed that we need to rely again on individuals to notify their own close contacts as well. Um, and so that's a concern. And again, you just can't go forward without getting to lower levels where you have containment, where that positivity is lower so that you know you're catching more of the disease, where you're testing enough people. And those systems are just absolutely stressed and, and they're going and they're they're exploding, I think, across the country right now. And so that's, um, you know, I think we could be smart about things and we know what things work now in terms of different restrictions. And, you know, we can ease the, the struggles we have on economies and things like that. I think we can keep schools open in a lot of situations. But when you get to this level of spread, um, it's, it's near impossible, uh, absolutely impossible. Shannon, do you want to add to that? I would agree with Graham's sentiments. Contact tracing isn't easy to start with on a good day. But with the volume that we're seeing, uh, it becomes an increasing problem. And then what we're encountering, too, as we do the contact tracing, people are not always forthcoming with the information, especially we've seen it among some of the college kids where they don't, don't want to get their friends in trouble. And by in trouble, we're not getting anyone in trouble, but we're asking that they quarantine for 14 days. And unfortunately, as Graham has mentioned, everyone's under this COVID fatigue. No one wants to be told to stay home for 14 days. Um, sometimes we actually go out to the field and we'll knock on doors of someone who has not answered the call for us. And those people aren't home. And these are cases that we're following up with. So these are people who have been confirmed to have coronavirus 
and they're still out and about within that 10-day isolation period. So just because you're not symptomatic doesn't mean you're not spreading it to other people. And I realize that people are tired of being told to stay home, but unfortunately, it's having very dire consequences for some members of the community because we're not willing to buckle down and we really need to change the attitude in the coming months. There is hope with some of the vaccine news that we've heard recently, but we really need to you know, stick to the task for these next few months. I want to get to the whole idea of, of the holidays coming up um, early in the program. And, and I think um, Dr. Osmalis, you can address this first. And if anybody else has something to say about it, please feel free. But uh, we've been hearing a lot of uh, a lot of people talk about how um, the holidays are going to be a, a really difficult time, and if people are going in and having the, trying to have their usual holiday get-togethers, it's going could be disastrous. So, Dr. Osmalis, how would you recommend people spend the holidays, Thanksgiving in particular? Um, uh, just before I answer that, let, let me. I want to make a quick comment just to reinforce what was what was just said. Um, if you imagine the epidemic that we're in and you have, you know, one individual who's infected and during a 10 day period of time, they just infect one other person, then our numbers are going to be stable and not drop at all. And if they infect more than one person, then our numbers are going to exponentially increase. So think about that 10 days and just one other person infected is what it takes to keep this going and keep our cases you know, in, increasing. So people have to be very sensitive to isolation or quarantine, depending on which applies, and not get fatigued on this issue. I have many patients who come into my office and they say, I'm tired of this, I wish it was over. And I respond to them, it's not over, get over it and get your head back in the game because we need everybody on the team here to stop this and when people you know, are under isolation and not maintaining isolation or under quarantine and not following quarantine, then we are, then we are completely hampered in our ability to contain this. And as these numbers go up and as a consequence, testing become results take longer and longer to come back. It becomes impossible to do contact tracing. People have already been you know, out and about by the time you get a result back. So it's very, very difficult. Yeah, with respect to Thanksgiving, you know, think about what you imagine at Thanksgiving. You travel to go see family members. And when you're there, you sit around a table and have a meal. Well, you can't stay six feet apart while you're traveling. And you can't stay, and you don't wear a mask when you're sitting at a table eating there's no way to maintain proper uh, preventative measures in that kind of setting. So I think the CDC's right when they say, you know, this year you really don't want to travel, particularly if you are high risk or you're going to go visit someone who's high risk. And even when you get there, you really can't have a normal Thanksgiving uh, when you're bringing individuals from different areas, people who have not, you've not been with, uh, all around a table together to share uh, Thanksgiving. So I think there are guidelines suggesting that you celebrate with people who you already live with, that you consider even outdoors or open windows or virtual visits or all those kind of measures make sense because we don't really have any other choice. I mean, if we're heading into Thanksgiving with already a huge increased number of cases, um, it's, it's very worrisome what might happen afterwards. Before we go to before I go to Sarah, I, I wanted to follow up with with you, Dr. Osmalis, about the difference between isolation and quarantine because I think sometimes people are a little confused as to you know what what the difference is. So when we isolate somebody, that is somebody who has the the COVID infection, and we isolate the healthy otherwise healthy individuals for ten days. Is that's the period of time that they may transmit it to somebody else. And that isolation needs to be strict. That means you don't go to the grocery store, you don't go anywhere, and you protect yourself in your home, separating yourself from other family members so you don't transmit it to anybody. Uh, quarantine means you've been exposed to somebody with COVID and we're monitoring you for that period of 14 days to see if you might develop symptoms or might become uh, infected. Um, 
uh, one thing about quarantine is we have an awful lot of patients going out and getting testing done during that period of time with the idea being, oh, gee, my test is negative. I don't need to quarantine anymore, which is just not the case. A negative test does not get you out of quarantine. I want to ask a follow-up just about Thanksgiving plans because I've heard from a lot of people who are going to get tested right now so that they can, you know, sort of quote, be free and clear to go celebrate Thanksgiving. Um, is that is that smart? Does that negative test really mean much? Well, my opinion would be there is some valid, some some advantage to that in that you know on the day that you got tested, you probably, excluding the possibility of false negative results, probably were not infected. But it does not by any means guarantee that you are not infectious or might not have disease or infection in the following day or two or three when you're visiting family. So it is it is perhaps something, but it's not, uh, it's no guarantee, no. All right, we, we've had a number of questions come in to us. Here's here's one that we actually got an answer to. So um, our, our producer sent uh, this question to Penny Cottle from the Monroe County Health Department. The question was, are there free testing sites in Monroe County? If yes, which are they? Who is eligible for testing? And Penny says, both the Optum site at the Armory and the new community site on Morton are free. Registration is always preferred and currently required at the new site on Morton. The only requirement is to be an Indiana resident. It is possible that insurance will be collected and billed if it applies. So I wanted to knock off that question. Um, I wanted to to go back to um, to Graham because, you know, we've talked about this before, but again, I think it just, it just requires stressing the... Um, the virus itself is the same as it's always been and it hasn't changed. And then, you know, I, I just want you to talk about, about that and how, you know, yes, we found some ways to better treat it. I know Dr. Rasmalis can talk about that. We've got vaccines on the horizon, but the idea that, um, you know, we're, we've rounded a curve or anything of that nature, that's just not true, right? Uh, absolutely not, of course. Uh, I think maybe some people run into that misconception that that would happen earlier this month, right? But um, no, this trajectory, I mean, just looking at the trend line, is it's not going away. I do think um, with some some near certainty that this, this will be the apex coming up, um, the next three to four months um, being particularly important and particularly bad. And again, that's why we got to do these personal actions and take personal responsibilities to have these healthful behaviors, uh, again, because there is that light um, ahead with vaccines. Now that's a, a, its own whole challenge <laughs> in terms of uh, deployment and logistics and uh, Herculean effort and uh, public health campaigning and messaging and getting vaccine uptake. I mean, we could talk about that for an hour alone and that strategy. Um, but oh, you know, well, if people we'll are fatigued about this, yeah, what's, we'll what's that? We'll have time to do that in the future. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this might take a while, uh, but we're getting it. But it's a good thing. I mean, it's incredible. Like, what a win for science, right? I mean, we're seeing these. Nobody's expecting this efficacy um, this quickly. And this is, you know, new technology of using the, the mRNA viruses with these first two. Um, so that's that's extremely exciting. And, like, again, like, that should give everybody the motivation to be like, okay, we're not continuing to just, like, have this crazy pandemic spiral up and down and, and, and you know that this is all unavoidable and this mentality that is just like uh not unavoidable it's inevitable you know and it's like well now no like the lives that you save the next three to four months like you can actually just save because we might have some of these solutions and the you know four to six months after that uh but it's probably going to take even longer than that honestly in terms of uptake uh and and just manufacturing and again getting enough vaccine in people um to get to that point but the virus has changed a little bit um you know not not significantly which i think is a good thing obviously for vaccines and immunity and we've seen some promising early um recent signs about maybe longer term immunity with um those other parts of our immune system that are not antibodies uh, t cells and, and b cells that make antibodies um, so that's promising. It, it did seem to become a little bit more contagious, but not more severe in terms of mortality. And then 
um, yeah, I would definitely defer to Tom in terms of the ability that um, the, the different treatment strategies and the way that we reduce mortality. What's really concerning, though, is when you have this many more cases. I mean, that that first surge in March looks like a blip right now. And knowing, I mean, there was a lot more mortality at that time for various reasons we can talk about. But knowing that more cases lead to more hospitalizations, lead to more deaths, even with lower mortality, when you're adding this many sheer numbers at it is, is really scary. And the fact that we're already seeing that last lagging indicator tick back up to 1,500, 2,000 deaths per day, I think it was yesterday. Um, and that's where they said that we could be at in December. Um, so, you know, we're already here and that's that's really concerning. Let me tell you how to get a hold of us. If you have a question, send it to news at indianapublicmedia.org or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Sarah? We got a question that's probably best for you, Dr. Hismalis. Um, the question is, will doing normal things that are good for your immune system protect you, such as staying hydrated, eating well, and exercise? Um, all those are good things, but um, no, they won't protect you against uh, getting the virus. Obviously being healthy and not having uh, chronic illnesses, maintaining good blood sugar control if you're diabetic, maintaining good blood pressure, those do have beneficial effects, but unfortunately, there's no measures that we know that are effective enough to prevent you from getting infected like that. Shandy Dirth from the uh, Fairbanks School at, uh, of Public Health at IUPUI. I was talking with uh, President Michael McRobbie last week, one day about various things going on at the university, and he referenced the studies and the great work that the Fairbanks School has has done. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, the research that's been done at the Fairbanks School and what you've learned from it? Sure. So Fairbanks has worked with the Indiana Department of Health to basically take the strategy of doing a surveillance sampling uh, plan throughout the state of Indiana. And they've done that several times throughout this pandemic. And so that really highlights and tells us how the transmission has worked around the state. So one of the early lessons we learned from that study showed us that if you have someone in your house with coronavirus, you're 12 times more likely to have someone else in the house as well. So it spreads through households very quickly. That's why when we tell someone, if you've got someone in your house with coronavirus, try and isolate that person into their own bedroom, try and have them use their own restroom if possible so that you don't have any of that shared space. We really wanna try and keep that ill person away from the rest of the family so that the rest of the family doesn't also become infected. I would think that that would have um, a bearing on this holiday season as well. Absolutely, so a lot of what we've seen in some of this data is what's driving our messaging. Don't go visit grandma and grandpa visit with them virtually this year. And I understand that's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to tell those family members that. But think of it this way. You're giving up this one holiday season so that you can see them next summer. You can have the summer cookouts after vaccinations. You can have uh, them go and watch the kids at the baseball games and all of those fun things that we want to do for many years. And we just need to sacrifice this one holiday season to help protect them going forward. Yeah, and I'll start with you on this because I think you said you know, something very similar last time you were on about, you know, the spread was occurring a lot of times between family and friends. But, you know, have we seen any true super spreader events or many super spreader events throughout the state? Or has it been mostly these close contacts with with people? A lot of the super spreader events we're seeing are actually family get togethers with weddings or house parties, housewarming parties, birthday parties. And so what you're seeing in the news across the country, that's happening here in Indiana as well. And so people just aren't listening to us tell them to stay away from their friends and family, unfortunately. I realize, you know, we are very social people and we want to see one another. But unfortunately, we need to um, adhere to the guidelines we've put out in 2020 through the holiday season. Otherwise, I'm afraid Thanksgiving is going to cause a huge boost in the number of cases that we're seeing. Dr. Osmalis, you have said before on our show, you've talked about um, a lot of the basic points about what, what people need to do, but you've also talked about, you know, what doctors, what you know as a physician that you didn't know when this whole, this whole thing started. 
you know, we we now have 250,000 people who have died around the country. Um, so I'm sure that a lot of the advances that you've made in, in treatments have, have slowed that down. What kind of advances have been made and in, in, in what, you know, what do you expect to see in terms of, of death rates going forward? Um, it, it, it's a good question. The, we have learned a lot from a standpoint of medical care. Um, and some things have certainly changed in the medical environment. Although we have a lot of patients in the hospital and in the intensive care unit, we're not struggling, for example, with having enough masks or gowns or gloves or things like that at this time. That seems to be uh, not everywhere, but at least locally here, uh, that seems to be under control and we have adequate supplies for management. And we've had, you know, advances in what we can offer people therapeutically that does indeed decrease mortality. Um, traditionally, we've done, uh, what we've been doing is remdesivir, the antiviral drug. We've been using uh, dexamethasone steroids uh, in people who are, need oxygen or on ventilators, and that seems to improve mortality. Um, so we've gotten better about uh, knowing who to treat, when to treat, and how to decrease mortality. There are some new medicines that are coming out that we're gonna have to decide how to how to use. So I believe Eli Lilly today um, announced that their um, rheumatoid arthritis drug, this vericitinib uh, uh, was approved to be used with remdesivir, with the antiviral drug in, in people who are needing oxygen in the hospital. And that may shorten hospitalization by an additional day. It's not a miraculous thing, but at least <clears throat> it, it, it's some uh, new offering. Uh, and Lilly also has their monoclonal antibody, the um, bamlamivimab, um, which you know may pay a, play a role for outpatients uh, who are high risk uh, that might help to decrease their risk of being in the hospital. So things are in, you know, in motion and in flux, and we're all excited about, uh, you know, the vaccines, both from Pfizer and Moderna. So, you know, all that's changing, but none of that is going to change the world in the next several weeks. Um, we're talking, you know, a couple months away, uh, perhaps before people are really starting to be vaccinated in numbers and months before we accomplish that. So, um, we need we need a lot of help to decrease the numbers. Um, although we've made you know changes in physical plant, you know where can we expand rooms to? You know we have more equipment, we have more supplies, we have medicines. You know we don't have more staff, we don't have more nurses, and you can still very easily overwhelm uh, the healthcare system. You know we we have been at this. Uh these shows for 10 months now, and we are still getting so many questions into the radio station about a variety of things that you would maybe think people would have known by this point. Here's one that we got just last week. Um, I'm not nothing critical for the person who asked it, but this question is, how do I personally know if I have COVID-19? What would, what would you, how would you answer that, doctor? If you have symptoms, you should go get tested. Um, if you can't get tested, you, you should assume if you have symptoms that you have it. So you don't potentially spread it to somebody else. And, um, and what, what's the latest on the, on the most frequently seen symptoms? Um, the symptoms are, are um, you know, the, the traditional symptoms of fever, cough, shortness of breath are certainly the ones that we see the most of that precipitate hospitalizations, you know, decrease oxygen saturation. Um, but many of the other symptoms that have been described, uh, loss of uh, smell, loss of taste, muscle aches, diarrhea, chills, uh, all that, but extending, as we have emphasized before, to being asymptomatic as well. So um, if you think you have symptoms or you have any of these symptoms, um, you should go get tested. Um, and that way we will know and that way we can contact trace and that way we can isolate and prevent the spread. And uh, the, the, the testing sites that you mentioned that uh, Penny 
uh, informed about are, uh, are wonderful and you can sign up on, online and, and get a test done. We've gotten so many questions about that and paying for testing. Um, those sites that Bob mentioned earlier, you can go if, even if you don't have insurance, correct? And it's free? Correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, another question we got, at what treatment point do you know a case is severe or mortality is likely? Well, there are, um, there are ways to estimate mortality in cases. Um, there are actually some formulas that you can do, but if individuals are elderly and if they have coexisting medical conditions uh, and if they're hypoxic, their oxygen levels drop, uh, particularly when we can see infiltrates and changes on chest X-ray and CAT scans of the lungs, then we know that those individuals are at higher risk. Um, uh, so we monitor them carefully. There are laboratory parameters that we can measure inflammatory markers in the blood that also predict a poor outcome or predict whether someone might end up in the intensive care unit. So we do all those things to try and make a judgment whether someone who might come into the healthcare uh, setting is safe to go home because they're low risk or need to be admitted to where we can watch them or need to be in the intensive care unit where they're at high risk. Um, we base it on clinical and laboratory and radiographic appearance. We've gotten several questions, I know, about going to the dentist, and maybe we've talked about this before, but um, another question we got from Byron, what about visits for teeth cleaning or eye exams with an optometrist? Both require close contacts. Is that being done safely? Um, I have had um, discussions and uh, given some you know, lectures and talks to the dental professionals in town. And um, my feeling is that they are all very much on board. They are following strict isolation, uh, I'm sorry, strict uh, uh, preventative regimens. They're wearing masks, they're wearing face shields, they're wearing all the proper equipment, they're cleaning well. And so I think, uh, I think they're, they're, uh, they're doing a good job. Um, in uh, preventing spread in their in their uh, facilities, and I think that's the same with uh, medical facilities as well. You know, some we have a lot of people calling and saying, "I'm afraid to go to the emergency room. I'm afraid to go to the doctor's office," and I don't think that's really warranted. I mean, people who come into the office are all masked. The, all the providers are masked. That's probably a, a pretty safe place to be, as opposed to you know being out in public where uh, people are not watching those precautions as tightly. So Sh Shandy Durth and, and Graham McKean, from a public health standpoint, I know we, we've talked about um, some precautions that have been taken, you know, some, some state, a statewide mask mandate. I don't think we mentioned that today, but we have that, but what, you know, what should, what, what do you think would be good public health policy from our government leaders, you know, at this point, I know that's a very broad question, but you know, are we are we seeing the kind? Are we doing the kind of things on a on a more macro level, or is it just a case of we have to be more uh, mindful individually? Have to be more mindful of what we're doing, Shandy. I would like to say I think it would help if we could have greater emphasis around enforcement with buildings businesses, agencies that aren't enforcing mask use among their customers um, in the restaurants, the bars, we're seeing a lot of violations called in. We're seeing a lot of issues where employers are telling their staff to come back to work before the quarantine is over, before the isolation period is over. So that's putting all of those other workers at risk. And so I think we need a better targeted way to handle some of those issues. Unfortunately, right now, unless something is specifically written in a public health order at the county level, since there's not a statewide mandate on this, these employers can't tell their staff to go back to work, unfortunately. And the only recourse we have is to encourage those people to reach out to OSHA. And I, I'm not sure what additional um, steps OSHA may take, but public health hands are kind of tied right now because there's not a lot of enforcement issue um, with some of these uh, guidance recommendations we're putting out into the public right now. 
Yeah, if I could follow up on that, I mean, a lot of the enforcement is left left up to the local health departments, correct? It is. And as Graham mentioned, Indiana is often 48th, sometimes 49th in per capita funding for public health spending in the U.S. The public health system has been gutted across the country um, before this pandemic happened. And since we were already at the in the bottom of the barrel in Indiana for public health funding, this has really hit the state hard. And I think that's part of what we're seeing with such high numbers around Indiana. Indiana overall is taking a harder hit right now in comparison to some of the other states. And I think it's because we just don't have that public health infrastructure there. We've uh, just not given the kind of focus to public health that we should have over the last 10, 20 years. All right, Graham, this one's teed up for you. Well, um, you know, you could, the regulations are only as good as the enforcement, so I would definitely agree with that assessment. And it's got to be that combination of, you know, three-legged stool approach of, of the community, the individuals, and the state and local governments working together. And if you're not doing the personal actions, you know, it's, it's not going to make any um, real difference. I, I do think, you know, I, one of the biggest problems I think nationally is – without some federal and just kind of standardized processes. Yeah, you can kind of turn and toggle things based on localities where you're seeing spread, but there's just uh, a whole array of approaches and not all of them really are based maybe in the best science or, or, you know, maybe not the best non-pharmaceutical interventions to take. You know, it seems backwards to me that New York City closes schools, but yet places like restaurants and bars where we know this spread is happening, where you have confined indoor spaces and people are unmasked, um, are remaining open. Um, you know, you can control that classroom environment much more. And there's a lot of reasons to try to continue to keep those spaces open, um, even during some times like this, potentially. Um, so I, I think there's that combination. And then, you know, just just the absolute tragedy of politics playing and spilling over into this. You know, we went, we went to stage five, um, it, you know, I think it was like 3.9% positivity. And like, and, you know, at that previous time in May, when we started opening back up, numbers were going down. I think it, that was the last time previously, it was around 5%. Well, you should learn your lesson the first time, every time you let up, that goes back up. And so that was not the time to let up, knowing that we were coming towards um, this, this, you know, winter surge. And so I just think that was a little backwards. I, th- you know, I think, what the, the state has imposed now provides that framework and just providing that framework and keeping it there, even without enforcement, I think does help a little bit, at least um, and maybe some personal actions and behaviors and that mentality that we have. Um, so, but that was a little too little too late um, at this point, because now we're back to this, this just incredible level of spread in the state. Andy, oh, go ahead, Sarah. Um, Shandy, we've gotten questions about like what it means for Monroe County to be in orange and then sort of a follow up to that. Uh, the question is, where does Monroe County rate on the highest to lowest chart of counties most affected by COVID-19? Can you try to address those? Sure, I can talk about what some of the color coding means that the state is using. Graham, you might want to actually take the Monroe County question. I'm more of a Marion County person. But basically, um, a few weeks ago, the state came up with the color-coded system. So if you look on the daily dashboard that the state updates each day at noon, you can see that counties are broken up into uh, blue, yellow, orange, and red. And if you're in the orange category, that means your seven-day average for your positivity rate in Monroe County is between 10 and 14.9%. So right now, um, anything at red is 15% or greater. And unfortunately, at this point, 22 counties in Indiana are in the red status. And 15% or greater is a very high number. That's very alarming for us. Orange is not great either. Most of the state right now is orange. Only one county is in the yellow category. And yellow is 5% to 9.9%. and I'm pretty sure that county would be changing here soon. It's surrounded by orange counties with one red county on the side. So it's very hard to keep the virus contained at your county border. Um, Graham, would you like to talk about Monroe County in specifics? Yeah, and I think I even heard this week um, when they looked at the one of the two metrics is the weekly cases per 100,000. And there was, uh, I think I was told there was not a single county that was not in the red uh, this past Wednesday. 
Um, and so Monroe County has been, and, and the city of Bloomington, uh, more restrictive. And I think that that's really helped um, with some of the numbers that we've seen in Monroe County over this time, and uh, especially over the summer, of course. Um, and so they have uh, updated their health order. Um, so it's a little bit more restrictive. Um, so the orange status does apply because we are, but for Monroe County, when we're in orange, that gathering limit is actually halved to 25, not 50. And of course, that's 15 inside the city of Bloomington. Um, also, no uh, buffet-style food, um, and you know, carry out as much as possible. And, and then bars and restaurants have to close by 1 a.m. So those, those are a few little bit of nuances. And there's a couple other things in their uh, newest order that's that's slightly um, been modified to kind of reflect this this coming uh, anticipated spread and what we're seeing now. Graham, do you expect that Monroe County's um, seven-day positivity rate is going to go up without the mitigation testing um, being done at IU on all the students? That's a great question. One um, I've, I've fielded from several individuals this week. Um, and so what we do, you know, we call our surveillance testing mitigation testing, and that's um, randomly selecting different subpopulations, and we can kind of toggle those up and down every week. And that gives us a good idea of prevalence in our system. And um, so we saw that kind of steadily increasing. It was well below 1% for several weeks here in Bloomington. Uh, and that was increasing as kind of what we expected to see with the other community spread. And so then we've offered across the system this last week, what we're calling departure tests. Uh, we offered, I think 25, over 25,000 of those across the system. And so um, we had enough people sign up here in Bloomington that our tests, our tests were actually higher this week uh, than we had previously been doing for surveillance. Part of that is us ramping up our uh, new laboratories in Indianapolis and, and Bloomington as well it's for that capacity. Um, so I do expect that to have a pretty big effect on the, the future positivity rate. Now this is delayed by about seven days on the dashboard, right? Um, so uh, next week we are not testing uh, due to Thanksgiving and in-person classes uh, ending uh, until February 8th. Um, so there'll only be symptomatic testing next week. However, over this winter and intercession periods, until um, we get back to the, the spring semester, um, we're going to increase um, our selection of people to test. So if they are here, hopefully they will, and hopefully that'll keep our numbers higher. Um, and we want to know where the disease is. We don't want to lose track of that over this period. And uh, we also are looking at offering some voluntary opt-in testing over this period as well to, to help kind of catch um, more people, offer more tests, and, and get a better idea of prevalence in our community. I think the uh, positivity rate, the seven-day positivity rate is such an interesting um, statistic. And I, I I was reminded of why I think it's interesting because it seems to me that if I read this right, New York has shut down schools because their positivity rate was getting around 3%. And, you know, we, we're talking about, you know, in the state, red is over 15% and and, you know, so much higher percentages that are being seen here that are um, causing, you know, some sort of public um, public orders. But in New York, it, I, is that, am I correct about that? 3%, I think, Graham, have you seen that? Uh, that was their level uh, for that action. And of course, um, a lot of that relates to how much testing is being done, especially in those communities and states. Um, and, and the higher it goes up, you know, that, that, that's the more that we can assume that we're missing in the community and population. And so um, that's a strict level, but maybe that's, that's a good thing uh, to take actions at those levels so you're not getting to points where we are in other states. Um, but I would really defer to our actual trained epidemiologist here uh, as well if Shandy has any more uh, comment about positivity. I know a lot of questions come up about the differences between uh, you know, all tests, unique individuals, and what those kind of things mean. Right. So um, you were right, though, in talking about the testing levels. So New York has had more testing than us all along. Um, Indiana has kind of struggled to keep up with testing that's been offered in some other states. And so it sounds complicated, the positivity rate, but it's really just a denominator and numerator that we're looking at. So the number of people getting tested, how many of those people are showing up as positive? Um, and New York is just testing so many more people. I don't want to say it's watering down the number, but think of it that way. Um, they just have a much higher sample that they're looking at when they're coming up with their positivity rate. Whereas um, we still don't have great testing. And in some of the uh, larger, more populated areas around Indiana right now, there's a long wait to, 
to be tested in the last couple of weeks. So I'm hearing stories of people trying trying to uh, schedule a test on Monday or Tuesday. They can't get in until Friday or Saturday. And that's been over the last couple of weeks. Not so much in the rural areas, but in some of the more populated areas, there's um, a greater pressure on the testing capabilities right now. And then those percentages have been set on our history here in Indiana. So that's why we didn't set those guidelines based on uh, someone like New York, who they've had greater testing capability. They can adhere to that 3%, whereas our testing just hasn't been able to rival what they've been able to do. And so our percentages are different. Again, though, I agree with Graham and that being strict in those percentages, um, what you follow when you decide to close something, restrict some access that's an important guideline to stick to and to, you know, address that over and over again as we go through this pandemic. There have been some lessons learned. Um, what we're seeing is there hasn't been a lot of spread within the schools. That is a very controlled setting. But unfortunately, um, everything else going on in, in the community that's not very well controlled is affecting the schools. They're not having enough um, teachers available, enough bus drivers, enough custodial staff to work in some of the buildings. And that's why we're starting to see some of the schools close again around Indiana because the community has not protected the school buildings, basically. They're putting too much of a strain on the school. The school themselves have done a great job, but unfortunately, they can't be in a bubble all of the time protecting from the community. I think your your explanation is is really relevant to what we've seen in Bloomington too because of the university. They have such testing uh, capability that their rates are always considerably lower than the rest of uh, the community. So, uh, Dr. Rismalis, we had a uh, somebody sent in a question by Twitter about hydroxychloroquine. Said that uh, he had seen this person had seen a Twitter thread by the Dean for Brown School of Public Health where he testified at a Senate Homeland Homeland Security or Homeland Committee against the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine. This questioner wants to know, is he correct? Is hydroxychloroquine really ineffective? Um, It appears to be not effective. Um, So back in March and April, when we didn't know, and there was some some scientific evidence in vitro and some small clinical studies from China and then subsequently from France that suggested it might be effective, we were indeed using it. And we were using it at the recommendation of the um, CDC and the FDA who said uh, that it might be it might be effective. However, since then, there have been many, many, many studies done all around the world, including a large study by the World Health Organization. And whenever you're doing lots of studies, you can find some that show some advantage and some that show some disadvantage. But um, uh, many, many studies have been done and both the World Health Organization, the CDC, the FDA, the Infectious Disease Society of America have all judged that hydroxychloroquine is not effective treatment. And if used, it should be used as part of a experimental study, a protocol, not just being used uh, uh, routinely. So yeah, we don't use it anymore at the hospital. We haven't used it uh, since early in the spring uh, because it just has not shown to be effective. All right, we only have about three minutes to go. I wanted to uh, ask another question about the way things have sort of changed over time. I know, you know, getting back into the politics of things, a lot of people would cite, you know, would say, well, you know, Dr. Fauci said he didn't need to wear a mask. So why do we have to wear a mask now? I mean, the the information that we're finding and the the from the studies and this that that have been done sort of changed the way we approach this over time. Is is that correct? Can somebody explain that a little bit? Um, Graham, can you address that? Yeah, I mean, as, as we learn, you adapt. And as the science shows you um, what is a likely association, um, that you modify your, your recommendations. And um, this virus was probably circulating around this time last year, but it's, it's, we haven't known about it. Uh, uh, and it hasn't you know, been in the scientific realm for, for more than a year even. So um, 
and not being able to see it firsthand initially and, and not being able to study it right away, um, you know, takes some time. And so uh, I think we've learned a lot about, and it's very clear that, uh, and it's showing increasingly that um, the evidence of, you know, at least short-term airborne transmission, it's very common. Um, there's, I think, increasing evidence that as much as it is nice to clean and disinfect things, especially for m m most, many diseases, um, and it is not as important um, as everybody think they thought in March. And so those things adapt and change. But, you know, what we do know uh, and have known for quite some time now, it's the same, <laughs> the same things now. And it is the masks and it is the distancing. And those things aren't going to change. And this is the most important time to practice them for just a few more months with us. And, you know, if people don't like wearing masks or if they think it's a hoax or if they're, I think part of the problem is the, the incredible spectrum of disease from asymptomatic to death uh, that many people that get it or, or see it and they don't think it's a big deal. But, you know, talk to some healthcare workers, go to some hospitals and you will see it. Um, so if you don't like those things or if you think that these things aren't real, uh, then you better go get your shot because it's going to be the fastest way forward. Um, right. and the fastest, fastest way that we can get past all of this. Last last word um, from Dr. Osmalis. Uh, how can people be, and you've said this before, but how can people be safe for Thanksgiving? Safest for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, yeah. So it certainly looks like a lot of spread occurs when people who perhaps are not living in the same household in particular come together in small group gatherings and large group gatherings. Uh, and so travel is risky because you're in close proximity to a lot of people. Um, visiting high-risk individuals, grandparents and parents is risky. And so uh, the best thing to do is to not travel, to have Thanksgiving with people who already live with your, in your same family, to socially distance, to wear masks, to be clean, uh, to use uh, every method that you've heard now dozens and dozens of times over to prevent transmission. And we really, really, really cannot let Thanksgiving turn what is already a crisis into a huge disaster. All right. Thank you, Dr. Tom Rasmalis. And also thank you to Graham McKean and Shandy Durth for being here with us today. I want to thank co-host Sarah Whitmire, producer Benton Boutier, engineer John Bailey. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. This has been Noon Edition on WFIU. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.